You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from a concussion? Concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all of the local professionally trained concussion clinicians in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation, and will be able to quickly determine the root cause of your symptoms and work with you to develop a plan to get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving your symptoms, you can't ever hope to relieve them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and the net promoter score as judged by real patients is higher than Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. Completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic. You won't regret it. So this uh, particular talk is going to cover the um, pathophysiology and get into uh, acute management and assessment of people with concussion injuries. Uh, it's not something that's heavily taught in our curriculums, as you are likely aware of. And um, so that's why uh, I'm trying to do my best to bring this type of education to uh, you guys, the future healthcare professionals. Um, so welcome, Logan. So today we're going to talk about the pathophysiology. Uh, some biomechanic stuff, which is very interesting and very applicable to us as chiropractors. And then we're going to get into assessment and management uh, for uh, acute concussion injuries. So the bio, this is me. Uh, you can follow me on social media at concussion underscore doc. Uh, I am a sports specialist chiropractor from Canada. I'm a fellow of the Royal College of Chiropractic Sports Sciences. And um, I specialized in concussion during my residency, and I did all my research at the University of Buffalo with uh, John Lenny and Barry Willer, uh, who we'll talk about with respect to the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test. Uh, I've published a, a, a handful of articles and studies on concussion, uh, and I've spoken at a number of different conferences on concussion. I'm also an executive board member of Brain Injury Canada, and I am the founder of Complete Concussion Management Incorporated, which... For those that don't know, it's a global network of concussion clinics uh, around the world, mostly centered around uh, the rehabilitation for people with persistent concussion symptoms. We also work a lot with uh, local athlete um, uh, sports clubs, schools. Uh, we work at the national level with a lot of Olympic clubs, as well as at the local level with anything from you know, minor soccer all the way up to uh, junior and uh, semi-pro. Uh, all of our training programs are, are now online. Uh, we've done this in an effort to try and allow people to continue practicing while they're going through their education. So everything is now done 100% online. We have a lot of tools and stuff that we use with our clinics. So we have software that we've developed specifically for concussion to allow people to uh, be able to manage these injuries within their clinic. And we give them all the test protocols, everything they need within their own kind of concussion specific EMR which partners with a smartphone application on the sidelines for uh, therapists and things like that. Uh, we do a lot of concussion testing, management for acute injuries, stuff we're going to talk about today in terms of uh, baselines and appropriate baselines. And then we also provide monthly research updates. So one of the big things for us 
is maintaining a level of expertise, uh, taking any type of concussion continuing education programs. Uh, the, the research on this is exploding at such a rapid rate that within the next two, three months, everything I'm going to tell you today is potentially going to be out of date. So you, it's really important that you have to keep on top of this type of stuff, okay? So getting in now to the path of physiology, now that you know a little bit about uh, me and where I come from, uh, the way the brain is organized is actually in different layers. And this is going to be important for how a concussion injury actually occurs. So you can see here the outer layer of the brain is gray matter. Uh, it's gray because it's not wrapped in myelin like the white matter is. The, 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 excuse me, the white matter is wrapped in a fat cell called myelin, which gives it a white consistency. Um, the gray matter is just the cell bodies. And so these two tissue layers, if you look at gray matter versus white matter, they're actually different densities. And this is important because concussion is actually an acceleration and deceleration injury. We used to think of concussion as a coup-contra-coup injury, where the brain would hit the skull and then uh, fly back and hit the back part of the inside of the skull, creating this bruising on the outer cortex of the brain. What we actually are learning now is that concussion is actually more of a deeper white matter injury. And the reason that it happens is because these two tissue layers are different densities and therefore they accelerate and decelerate at different rates. So what you're gonna get is when an impact occurs, the gray matter and white matter are going to kind of shear across each other, which is gonna create a stretching and shearing injury of the axons themselves. So what used to be thought of as a gray matter injury, uh, and if you Google concussion now, you'll still see the images on, 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 on Google saying, you know, concussion bruise, and it'll show, you know, how the injuries happen, coup contra coup. But actually what we know is it's more of a stretch shear injury. So the old theory, was coup contra coup. The new theory is a stretch shear theory. Now, I'm gonna play this video, and this is just a GIF that I found, but you can see how the brain has a bit of a fluid wave to it. So you can see when the impact happens, it slides up and it has this kind of fluid wave. Now the brain is the consistency of jello, right? Now if I'm to shake a plate of jello, you're gonna see it kind of jiggle around just like that. Now if you're to zoom in, on every little jello fiber strand, or in this case, axon, you're gonna see them stretching up and pulling across each other. And so this image or this video kind of shows that. I was looking all over YouTube to try and find videos that would highlight this. Uh, the best I found was a lawyer talking about MVA accidents. And uh, you can see this lawyer will kind of creep into the side here. His arm, you'll see him kind of come into the picture. But anyway, what you'll see on impact here is as this impact occurs, these two tissue layers, there he is. I had to crop him out. <laughs> uh, you can see these two tissue layers kind of slide across one another and then come sliding back. I'm gonna speed this up here so that you can see it from this level. This will give you a better appreciation for it. So there's that cross shear, and you can see how the axon also gets stretched. Now they're making it look like this brain cell has actually died, um, but that's not actually the case. So here's what happens. Concussion is what's referred to as a neurometabolic cascade. So once that acceleration or deceleration injury happens and you get that cross shearing of brain cells, you're going to get the membrane of the neuron actually deforms so that those voltage-gated channels that are normally closed, remember we have concentration gradients, 
right? We have high amounts of potassium inside the cell. We have high amounts of calcium and sodium outside of the cell. They're going to want to go in their concentration gradient directions. Now, as that membrane gets pulled open, there's little pores in the membrane of the neuron. Now, once those get stretched to a great enough degree, they actually get open. And as soon as they get open, you're going to get ion exchange that occurs. Now, with ion exchange, you're going to get depolarization. And with depolarization, you're going to get action potentials. So if you want to think about what a concussion is, all a concussion is is millions of axons or millions of brain cells all at the same time that essentially get tricked into thinking that they've received a signal. So you get this stimulation that occurs, this electrical storm. The first phase of concussion is called the excitatory phase, and that's exactly how that happens. So once you get action potentials, you're going to get a release of neurotransmitters, and in this case, glutamate. And hopefully you guys can see that. Hopefully it's not hidden uh, by the images here, but you're going to get a release of glutamate, which is the main contributing excitatory amino acid or neurotransmitter in this case. When you have a release of excitatory neurotransmitters, you're going to get more action potentials. So you can think of concussion basically as this electrical storm that happens as a result of the impact or stimulation to the brain. That glutamate release, not only does that cause more action potentials, but it also activates what's called NMDA receptors or N-methyl-D-aspartate receptors. Those receptors are essentially calcium channels. So they activate, and if we go back just a second here, so you can see that in terms of concentration gradients, calcium already wants into the cell. So calcium already is going to get in with respect to the injury happening and that, and that um, initial insult. But once that glutamate gets released and opens up these NMDA receptors, you're going to get more calcium flooding into the cell. Calcium getting into the cell is the biggest problem that we have with concussion injuries. If we could figure out a way to block calcium from getting in during injury, uh, we would have huge success in making sure these injuries would only last a matter of minutes. Uh, calcium is the reason why they can last uh, weeks or even longer. So the initial symptoms that somebody may feel as a result of this electrical storm that's happening, just think about an overstimulation of the brain. What's going to happen? Well, they could go unconscious. They might go into a seizure. They could have a vacant stare, right? You're talking to somebody and they're just blankly staring at you. They don't know what's going on because there's so much information happening that they can't make sense of it all. They could be delayed, confusion, blah, 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 go down the list. It can affect a number of different processes within uh, the brain. Now, here's a video of somebody getting a concussion on a skateboard, and this person actually goes into a post-traumatic seizure. So you can actually see how this electrical storm starts to take hold and starts impacting this individual, right? And he's conscious throughout this. He's talking throughout this. He starts banging his head off the pavement. So obviously, like, bad things happening. It's really difficult to watch. But that, you can just picture that electrical storm and how that occurs. So that is what's known as a post-traumatic seizure. Now, this right here is a fencing response. Uh, this happens in up to two-thirds of patients with loss of consciousness. But this indicates that there's brainstem involvement. So that fencing response there is that individual stretched way out, arms up to the side, and they gradually will fall back down. So you can see a better angle here. Helmet whips off, neck whips back. So you can imagine the neck trauma that was suffered at that same time, right? This one here comes from the NHL, Jonathan Taves. And he gets hit, and when they're going to slow this down. You'll see that he actually doesn't even get hit in the head. He gets hit in the body. So a big misconception of concussion injuries is that you have to be hit in the head. Well, it's acceleration, deceleration of the brain. 
So no matter where you're hit, if there's enough acceleration transmitted up to the head, see that shoulder to shoulder hit. If there's enough acceleration transmitted up to the head, the brain's gonna undergo that whipping motion and that whipping motion is going to cause that cross shearing. Now you can see right away off balance, right? There's no reason that somebody at that caliber at that level is gonna be off balance following a hit like that. So immediately right away when that guy falls, you go concussion right away. There's no ifs, ands or buts about it. That guy has a concussion. You don't even have to do anything further other than make sure it's not something more serious than a concussion injury. So let's recap where we're at. We have this depolarization that happens. It releases glutamate. Glutamate activates NMDA receptors and it also causes more action potentials. The activation of the NMDA receptors causes an influx of calcium into the cell. So essentially what we've created is an ion imbalance, right? We've had everything go down their concentration gradients and now we got to get it back. Well, the way that we get it back is we have to pump things against their concentration gradients, which means we have to use the sodium potassium pump, which burns ATP, right? Because we have to push things against their concentration gradients, which means that we're using energy to do that. So now in order to reset this imbalance that happens, we have to, we have to burn a lot of ATP. That ATP pump in a normal healthy brain is responsible for over two thirds of our ATP uh, consumption. So it's very metabolically active. And now we've had to spike that because of the injury that's happened. The only problem here is that calcium gets into the mitochondria, which is what produces our ATP at scale, and it renders it dysfunctional. So calcium has a high affinity for mitochondria. It gets in and it disrupts the mitochondria's ability to produce ATP. So therefore, we have an increased use and need for ATP, but we have decreased production. And we're actually relying now on anaerobic means of ATP production, which are nine times less efficient. So we have increased demand, um, and therefore we need more blood flow. Kind of the perfect storm of events happening here. Now we also have decreased blood flow that happens inside the brain. As much as 50% reduction in blood flow to the brain in some animal studies. So we have this perfect... Uh, storm of events that are happening. I can't get in obviously to the mechanisms on blood flow in this short session, but what we're left with is increased demand for ATP and decreased production. So we are left with what's called an energy crisis. The second phase of concussion is this energy crisis. This is what's known as spreading depression. So you can see here, this is a mouse study. You have ATP on the y-axis here, you have time on the x, and after the first couple minutes, you already see decline in the ATP levels within the rat. It hits six hours, you hit a peak low, and then it gradually builds back up, all the way back up until 120 hours, we have no more star, meaning no more significant difference, and we're five days out. So in the rat model, concussion causes a temporary drop in energy that lasts about five days, or potentially a little bit longer, but it's not significantly different at that five-day mark. What we know is that during this low energy phase, the brain is extremely vulnerable to additional trauma, okay? So you can get concussed easier during this recovery phase, and those concussions can become cumulative and additive and create serious and potentially permanent or life-threatening uh, conditions. So here we have the difference between a mild traumatic brain injury, which is concussion. Concussion is in the spectrum of mild traumatic brain injury. And we have the difference between that and severe brain injury. In a mild brain injury, you have about a 20% reduction in your ATP levels. Mitochondria is impaired, but it's not fully damaged. So it can be reversed. It repairs itself, it recovers. 
into your brain and you have as much as 50% reduction in the ATP levels of your brain and potentially to the point where it's permanent. The mitochondrial damage is potentially too great and permanent and you get apoptosis of the cell where you create permanent damage of brain tissue. You don't get that in a single concussion injury. Concussion is a functional injury. It's a metabolic injury. It is not a structural injury, which means that imaging, MRI, CT scans, those types of things are generally normal in somebody with concussion because the brain structure remains intact. Now, two concussions in close temporal proximity, meaning two concussions back to back, meaning two concussions before you fully recover from the first, can create a cumulative effect and cause the same level of injury seen in severe brain injury. So the big thing for your acute concussion patients is making sure they don't get another concussion in their recovery phase. That's when you want to be really uh, protective of them, which is why there's such a huge focus on athletes returning to contact sports. So this is what's called second impact syndrome. Now, this is another study that was done in animals. And you can see here, this is a control group uh, in this far left bar. If you can see my mouse moving. In the middle group, we have a group that had one concussion. And on the far right group, we have a group that had a severe traumatic brain injury. So you can see with concussion, you get about a 20% reduction in the ATP levels. And you can see with severe brain injury, you get about a 50% reduction in the ATP levels. Now, what these researchers wanted to do is they wanted to wait and give the animal a second concussion at different time points during their recovery to see what would happen. So remember we said that in a rat model, uh, concussion injury recovers in about five days. So they waited full five days, gave the animal a secondary concussion, and you can see each one of these groups has a single star on it, which means that these two groups were not significantly different from one another, okay? So meaning that if you get a full concussion, and you recover fully and you get another one, it's just like having a second concussion. There's no additive or cumulative effect. You just go through the same process. Then they hit the animals at day three. So these are different groups, right? So this group had a concussion. This group had two and they were only spaced out by three days. In this scenario, you have these two groups not being significantly different, meaning that if you get two concussions in close proximity before you've recovered from the first one, you can end up with a severe brain injury. And in fact, 10% of the animals in the, each of these groups died as a result of their injuries. 10% died in the severe brain injury group and 10% died from getting two concussions back to back. This is what's known as second impact syndrome. This happens in young athletes, probably once or twice every single year, there's a new story that comes out from somewhere in the world of somebody dying from second impact syndrome. But they had a concussion and they returned to play too soon and got hit again. So this is a big thing as healthcare professionals, to make sure that we're not letting happen. The name of the game for concussion is recovery. And it's not just symptom recovery, it's from the metabolic recovery side of things, okay? And this is why. Human studies looking at the same thing. So there's a, there's a, a technology called magnetic resonance spectroscopy or MRS. It's an MRI technology, but it looks at different metabolites within the brain. The one that we're interested in is called NAA or N-acetyl aspartate. It is a correlate of ATP. So you can't measure ATP directly, but through this technology, which you can only get as a research tool right now, uh, you can't just order these types of images. But when we look at these, you can see this NAA. So look at the black bars. So you can see this is a control group. This is their NAA levels. This is three days after injury. You can see there's a significant difference. This is 15 days after injury. You can see that there's still a significant difference. 
from the control group. 22 days after injury, there's still a significant difference from the control group. And then it's not until day 30 that that single star disappears, indicating that there's no more significant difference from control. So what in the rat took five days for recovery in the human takes somewhere between 22 and 30. We don't know if they were maybe fully recovered at day 23 or 24 or 25. We don't know. So somewhere between three and four weeks here, they hit that full recovery mark. Other studies have shown this up to 45 days after injury. But basically somewhere between three and six weeks, it's going to take a patient with a concussion to fully recover from that metabolic side of things. Here's the scary part. Every single patient in this study was asymptomatic by day 15. So symptoms do not reflect recovery of the brain when it comes to concussions. Unfortunately, a lot of our protocols still rely on symptom-based approaches, right? Oh, well, he no longer has symptoms, so then he can go. A lot of times, um, sports clubs will just require a doctor's note of any kind. And most physicians are simply relying on symptoms to guide their management decisions. And this is where you end up in trouble, right? Even at two weeks later, you would think that, hey, it's got no more symptoms, it's been two weeks, sure, go ahead and play. But there's still this period of time afterwards where the brain is potentially vulnerable to additional trauma. Now, this is a case series that was published using this same uh, study. So this is the largest study that was ever done. It was done in Italy. And this is 40 concussed individuals and 30 controls. Six of the people in that study decided they didn't want to wait the full 30 days for the study protocol to be done. They decided they wanted to go back and do their sport earlier. So here we ended up with a case series. We can't voluntarily subject humans to repetitive trauma like this, but this is people that made their own decision and ended up getting a second concussion. So we end up with this nice little case series. So There's only six. It doesn't give us a full amount of information, but it gives us something. So here's the people here. They're all um, fairly young uh, males. Here's the sports, boxing, rugby, soccer, soccer, kickboxing, boxing. Here's the symptoms after the first concussion. So you can see there's two, three symptoms on each one of them. Symptom duration, fairly typical of what you'd expect in a concussion patient. Three days of symptoms, four days of symptoms, eight days, seven days, eight days, five days. Time between injuries. So here's where they got their second injury. 10 days, 9 days, 18 days, 16 days, 21 days, and 19 days after their first injury. Now look at the number of symptoms after that second concussion. There's been more loss of consciousness. There's increased number of symptoms indicating potentially increased severity of injury. And then you have an increased symptom duration, right? What took three days after one injury now takes 52 days to recover the symptoms. 59 days, 44 days, 35 days, 24, and 33. So you can see here this huge discrepancy and this additive cumulative effect of people that go back to play too soon. And if you look here, there's a direct kind of correlation with how long they had between injuries and how long their symptoms were after. The guys with the shortest duration of time between injuries, nine days, end up with the longest symptom duration after. Those with the longest duration between injuries end up with the shortest symptom duration afterwards. So it definitely matters how soon you're sending somebody back into play their sport. And you can look here at NAA normalization. So this might be kind of hidden for you guys. I don't know, but you have NAA normalization. What took 30 days after that first concussion now takes 120 days, 120 days, 90 days, 90 days, 60 days, 
90 days. But you can see here that not only do your symptoms last longer, but now your period of vulnerability lasts longer. And this is when you end up with these young athletes that have to retire at age 16 because they've had too many concussions, right? Did they have too many concussions or did they just get too many concussions too close together and end up in a state of perpetual vulnerability where any little impact now sets them up for having a prolonged outcome and they get concussed easier and easier and easier each time. And then with each one of those, they get more and more vulnerable and their symptom duration expands longer and longer and longer, right? So this is when it comes down to, do we have a concussion problem or do we have a concussion management problem? Right? Does the NFL have a concussion problem or does the NFL have a concussion management problem? If we were able to handle these injuries appropriately each and every time they occurred, would we see the long-term effects that we're currently seeing in professional and amateur sport? I don't think so. So what is the physiologic time? We don't have access to these fancy imaging tools to be able to order them up. They just don't, they don't exist yet. They're a research tool, so we're learning stuff, but we can't just order these types of images. Now, because of these assessment challenges, this is, this is from a systematic review that informed the most recent international consensus statement. Because of these assessment challenges and the potential for repeat injuries and returning patients to sports too early, clinicians are frequently left in a quandary with limited data to guide decision-making. Some recent studies suggest the physiologic time for recovery may outlast the time for clinical recovery. The consequences of this are uncertain, but one possibility is that athletes may be exposed to additional risk by returning to play while there's ongoing brain dysfunction. Possible hazards may include repeat injury, prolonged symptoms, increased risk of musculoskeletal injury, more severe physiologic dysfunction, or increased risk for neurodegenerative disease. Symptoms alone are not a good indicator of recovery. We know that based on those studies that I just showed you. So we need more objective measures. We need balance, reaction time, cognitive ability, memory, visual processing, uh, physical capacity, all these different types of things we need to know about somebody's function, not necessarily just their symptoms. Now, here's a study looking at neurocognitive testing, which is a popular way of doing this. Um, they find that at the asymptomatic time point, almost 40% of people are still showing dysfunction on computerized neurocognitive testing. So their recommendation here is that the exclusive use of symptom reports in making return to play decisions is not advised. A multifaceted approach to concussion assessment includes evaluation of a myriad of functions is warranted. The problem is, online computerized testing by itself is not sufficient. So although that test shows that there's dysfunction, it's going to miss some things. Neuropsychological tests should only be used as a part of a comprehensive concussion management strategy and should not be used in isolation. Now they've been saying this for close to 10 years now, unfortunately it, across numerous places, people are still simply relying on the use of computerized testing. Here's, some, here's a study and a couple studies coming up to just drive that point home. Clinical utility of impact, which is a popular computerized test. We conclude that the empirical evidence does not support the use of impact testing for determining the time of post-concussion return to play. Test retest reliability of computerized concussion assessment programs. They assessed three different ones, and they found that three contemporary computer-based concussion assessment programs evidence low to moderate test retest reliability. Uh, here's another one, impact test, retest reliability, reliably unreliable. And what they found was that um, uh, their conclusion was our current data support a multifaceted approach to concussion assessment 
using clinical examination, symptom reports, cognitive testing, and balance assessments. So computerized testing is an important component of your overall battery of things that you would do with an athlete. However, it shouldn't be the only thing you do, right? And I think a lot of people fall into this trap of just saying, okay, well, I've done this, this computer test, that's good enough. But the problem is by itself, there's reliability issues like any one test, right? If you're concerned over somebody's knee injury, you're not going to do one orthopedic test and walk away, right? You're going to look at range of motion. You're going to look at strength. You're going to look at a variety of orthopedic tests to eventually arrive at what your you know, working diagnosis is. When it comes to concussion, it's the same thing. You can't just look at one particular test and think that that's enough and just walk away. So that's kind of the point I want to drive home is that these tests are important, but by themselves, they're useless. So we need comprehensive testing. The heterogeneity of concussion supports the movement towards multimodal concussion assessment, which is premised on the view that a single domain-specific outcome measure is insufficient for detecting the full spectrum of concussion sequelae. The multidimensional assessment approach recognizes this complexity and integrates outcome measures across multiple domains of functioning. So again, this is just to drive home single versus multimodal assessments. Here's a couple studies. King Devic, which is a concussion test that we utilize quite often, identified 53% of concussions by itself. The pitch side concussion assessment identified 74% of concussions by themselves. Cogsport identified 57% of concussions by itself, but together they identified 100%. Okay. Same goes for this one. One test by itself, 83, 75, 70 by themselves or together, 92%. Uh, impact, symptom severity, sensory organization test, which is a, a balance test. Uh, when each test was used se uh, separately, 47.5% of our sample was misclassified. When combined, almost 100% was classified appropriately. So again, any one tool by itself is insufficient. Um, this one here, again, this looked at, this is probably the largest study that looked at this, 4,800 people. Ultimately, while none of these measures individually meet the reliability standards set for clinical utility, there's evidence that combining them into a multifaceted assessment model provides a high level of sensitivity by comparing baseline performance to post-concussion changes in cognitive function. Now, I should say that any of these tests require pre-injury information on an athlete. We can't use normative data, right? We can't use, um, I'll get back to my orthopedic example, we can't just use our previous history of how certain things should feel because everybody, when it comes to neurocognitive function, balance, strength, uh, reaction time, everyone's so different that the range of normal is so wide that even some people with exceptional balance, even while concussed, would still fall in the range of normal. So it's important to know prior to each season, who has exceptional balance, who has terrible balance. At the same token, you don't want to be holding back an athlete for not having good balance when they've never had good balance, right? You want to make sure that you're comparing an individual to themselves with a margin of error, right? Anyone's going to have a margin of error. Things are going to fluctuate throughout a competitive season. People are generally going to get bigger, faster, stronger as the season goes off particularly when you're dealing with high school and college age athletes or even younger, things are going to rapidly improve. So you're going to want to be doing this every single year to keep up to date, but you're also going to have to attach some sort of margin of error around any individual score. But looking at simply normative data is, has been found to be quite insufficient. Again, just driving this point home, there's so many studies on this that show that any one test by itself is pretty useless, but combining them into a full battery 
is the right way to go, provided there's baseline data to go with it. This again, just drives that point home. So let's get in now to acute injury management, return to learn work and play. So the clinical assessment, your very first clinical visit, really the goal of what you're doing in your first assessment is simply trying to make sure that they don't have something more serious than a concussion. A concussion injury by itself, provided that it's handled in the right way, is not really, and I'm going to use this term, it's not really a big deal, right? It will recover. It's a functional injury. It's a fully recoverable injury. If you give somebody the right advice and the right management protocol, they will recover very quickly in terms of their symptom presentation. The big thing you want to be concerned with is do they have a hemorrhage inside their brain? Do they have increased brain swelling? Are they at risk for having a catastrophic injury that just hasn't been identified yet? So your initial assessment, particularly if it's been in the first 24 to 48 hours, is trying to rule out your red flags, okay? Severe or worsening headache, uh, vomiting, um, slurring of speech, you know, think, think stroke-like signs, right? If they're starting to have weakness or numbness in limbs, um, you know, altered DTRs, facial drooping, any of these neurological things would indicate a red flag and that person deserves and should be sent immediately to the emergency department. If none of those red flags are present, they have negative cranial nerve findings, negative cerebellar tests, negative uh, upper lower limb neuro signs, uh, then it's basically just you've ruled out the, the bad stuff and now you can focus on the concussion. And now you go, okay, we've ruled out everything bad. That's the point of your initial assessment. The initial assessment isn't necessarily to make the diagnosis of concussion. It's to make sure it's not something more serious than a concussion. That's basically your only job. And then you're going to provide them with education, reassurance, and all that other good stuff. So comprehensive history, detailed neurological exam, and a thorough assessment of mental status, cognitive functioning, sleep, wake, disturbance, ocular function, vestibular function, gait, and balance. Determine whether there's been improvement or deterioration since the time of injury, and you may uh, require seeking additional information from parents, coaches, teammates, etc. And basically what you're looking at here, this is the big one, determination of the need for emergent neuroimaging to exclude a more severe brain injury. So there's particular red flags that you should be familiar with if you're going to be treating concussion patients. Uh, one's called the Canadian CT head rule. The other one's called the New Orleans criteria. Uh, there's other ones for pediatrics called the PCARN and some other ones. And that's what you should be looking at and saying, okay, does the person have any of these types of red flags? If so, they need to go to the hospital right away and get a CT scan. If they don't, they don't. After um, a concussion injury, they should be able, they should be in to see a healthcare professional very early on in the recovery process. Within the first 24 to 48 hours is ideal. We just finished up a study using our data because uh, our clinics right now, because we have 350 clinics around the world that are all putting information into this same clinical database. We're able to collect information on concussion patients. We have the largest concussion database in the world right now. And so we're running a study right now with McMaster. And what we found that if we looked at everything that predicted recovery times for patients, we found that the number one predictor for patient recovery on top of all else, on top of sex, on top of psychological history, on top of injury severity, symptom presentation, everything, the number one predictor of how fast they were able to recover is how fast they were in to see one of our specialized clinical people. So you can see here at the top, 
you're kind of hiding it right now, but I think you guys can see it anyway. You can see the first two bars are kind of together. I don't know if you guys can see that, but that's people that came in on day zero and day one. The next group is day, people that came in on day three, four, or five. The next group that came in on day six, seven, eight, or nine, and then the group that came in at 10 days after. So you can see the recovery trajectory of people that came in in the first 24 to 48 hours had significant, uh, significantly improved or greater likelihood of having a quick recovery over anybody else. Those that were 10 days out or later had a more prolonged recovery. So it's very important that they get in to see somebody with experience in this area. And if you're going to be in this area, make sure you develop that experience and expertise by taking some additional training. Point of the initial assessment is to rule out a more serious injury. I've already covered that. Excuse me. Uh, your initial assessment should cover the history of what happened. Was there a loss of consciousness? Was there any vomiting? Uh, have they had any sim um, symptoms immediately following any impact? That's the diagnostic criteria for concussion. All you need to diagnose concussion is a mechanism of injury. You need some sort of acceleration, deceleration, impulse. It doesn't have to be a hit in the head. It could be a hit in the body. Provided there's a significant enough force transmitting up to the head, you're going to get a concussion injury. Now, the way to figure this out if there was a concussion is, was there an impact that resulted in acceleration, deceleration of the head to a significant degree that had symptoms immediately afterwards or shortly thereafter uh, that would be indicative of concussion injury? Right? So if you got hit, but you didn't have any symptoms, that's not necessarily a concussion. But if you got hit and immediately had dizzy, headache, nauseousness, that is a concussion. All right. So the, the, the ability to diagnose concussion is actually quite easy. All you need is a mechanism and a symptom. You only need one symptom. You get hit, you have a headache, that's considered concussion, according to the, the latest diagnostic criteria. And then generally, you'll ask about symptoms they're experiencing right now. Typically, you don't need to run them through your baseline battery immediately in the clinic because you're going to have, um, they're going to have a mechanism and then symptoms. You don't necessarily need to run them through that right now. Concussion performs no differently than orthopedic injuries on initial uh, assessment. So again, just because you've done some sort of assessment doesn't mean that you're able to pick up concussion any better. What baseline testing becomes important for is making your return to play decisions on the back end. So once you've kind of made your diagnosis, you've ruled out the red flags, now you're going to prescribe your initial treatment uh, method. Now, do you want rest? Do you want dark rooms? Hell no. So the new, or the new management criteria for concussions is not rest. Rest is old school. We used to say that the only treatment for concussion is rest. Now it's symptom limited activity. Anything you can do that doesn't provoke your symptoms to a significant degree is not only okay, it's actually encouraged. As long as this doesn't put you at risk for hitting your head again, right? So you want to be safe, but you also want to push people back into activity. But aren't I supposed to rest? This is the question that we always get. Rest is still one of the most widely implemented interventions. However, there is limited evidence to support its effectiveness. And actually, newer studies that are coming out are showing that rest is actually detrimental. It makes people worse. Any more than two to three days of rest actually worsens people's outcomes because it medicalizes the condition and it basically makes them think that their injury is worse than it is and it sends them on a path of having a prolonged outcome. So um, 
this is just to reiterate this, advice to rest for more than two days after concussion is associated with delayed return to productivity. This study supports the growing evidence that prolonged rest after concussion is generally unhelpful. How about exercise? We're actually finding now that exercise in the acute stages of concussion is beneficial for recovery. So this is a study here, what's called the survival analysis. And they found out that every day that you delayed in initiation of physical activity following your concussion injury, prolonged your outcome. So people that started exercising day one after the concussion were better off than those that started exercising on day two. And those that started exercising on day two were better than those that started exercising on day three and so on and so on and so on. So this represents um, some preliminary evidence to suggest that exercise is actually beneficial for people's recovery, but it has to be done in the right way. We have specific tests that we do with people. We put them on treadmills and we have them gradually ramp up their physical exertion to try and find out what level of exercise is safe and tolerable. This represents a huge opportunity for our profession to get involved in the concussion space from acute management perspective, right? Oftentimes we know that pyro is good for people with having prolonged symptoms, but in terms of acute symptoms, this is where we can help as well because we are the ones that are gonna be working in sports medicine-based clinics. We're the ones that have treadmills in our office potentially and have access to the tools to be able to actually do this stuff, right? Many on the physician side of things don't have treadmills in their office and they don't have the time to necessarily take with the patient and put them through this stuff. So this is a huge opportunity for our profession because it's demonstrating that not only exercise in the acute stages is beneficial, but also rehabilitation in the acute phases of injury speeds recovery. Here's another one here. This is more of kind of a randomized control trial. We have 24 in the rest group, 30 in the exercise group, and look at the days to recover. Exercise group, eight days to recover. Rest group, 23 days to recover. So significant difference in terms of recovery with exercise. More research is needed, but the research is becoming fairly overwhelming that exercise in the acute stage is good for recovery. And this is a systematic review, again, that informed Berlin. And what they recommended here, a period of brief cognitive and physical rest is appropriate in most patients. Again, this is 2017, so things are gradually shifting away from that even. Following this, patients should be encouraged to gradually increase activity. The exact amount and duration of rest are not yet well-defined and require further investigation. The data support interventions, including cervical and vestibular rehabilitation and multifaceted collaborative care. Closely monitored sub-symptom threshold, sub-maximal exercise, so this is that testing protocol I was talking about with the treadmill, uh, may be of benefit. So here's return to learn or return to work. They're basically the same. And each of these stages when returning somebody back into activity is based on symptom provocation. So we used to say you had to be asymptomatic at stage one in order to move on to stage two. You no longer have to be asymptomatic you just can't have symptom provocation with the next stage. So the first stage is basically, I usually give people, I say, okay, take today off work or today off school. And then tomorrow, let's try to start getting you back into activity. So take it easy today, but don't just rest and do nothing. I want you going for walks. I want you doing household chores. I want you maybe reading a little bit. I want you up and moving around. Bed rest, dark rooms, all that stuff is, is going to prolong symptoms. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about screens or anything like that. Anything you do that doesn't provoke your symptoms to a significant degree is okay. After they do kind of these light uh, activities, then they can start doing some cognitive activities. So if they're an office worker, they can start you know, answering emails from home. 
Uh, they can start doing, uh, they can start working from home even, doing phone calls or whatever else. It says my internet connection is unstable. Okay, cool. Um, uh, day three, so at, well, not necessarily day three, but if they're okay with this and they don't have any provocation of symptoms, if, once they're able to tolerate 45 minutes of activity, then you move on to stage three, which is returning to half days, half days of school or work. I usually give accommodations such as no gym, no tests, no homework, no recess, uh, just to make sure that they're not getting dumped on with a whole bunch of homework they have to get done or things like that. I let them ease into the situation. If they're okay with half days, then the next day they can go on to full days. So each one of these stages has to be separated by at least 24 hours and they have to have zero symptom provocation and then they can go on to the next stage. If they go from half days to full days and start experiencing an increase in symptoms, you drop them back to half days. Let them try half days again and then bump them up to full days again. Return to play, same type of process. You're gonna have symptom limited activity, right? So daily activities that don't provoke symptoms, basically very light stuff. Second, second stage, once they're okay with that, they're going to do light aerobic exercise. This is where we bring them in and put them on the treadmill. We put a heart rate monitor on them and we gradually ramp up their heart rate on a treadmill test to try and see what their tolerance to exercise is. If their tolerance is good, then we put them into sport-specific exercise, which we let them return to practice in a non-contact way. Uh, and then we do two non-contact practices. The first one is fairly light, right? Running or skating drills, no head impact activities, basically individual type drills. The next stage is getting into harder training drills. They can start doing resistance activities, weightlifting, getting back into the gym, getting themselves back into game shape. If they're okay with that, they come in for medical clearance. At the medical clearance stage, this is when we run them through uh, what's called the Chicago Blackhawks test, which is an intensive physical exertion test, and it's designed to try and provoke any type of lingering symptoms that may be present. So we'll put them on a bike. We have, uh, there's, there's various intervals they do on this to try and ramp up their heart rate. So heart rate up, heart rate down, heart rate up, heart rate down. Then we get them doing all sorts of plyometric stuff, jumping burpees, jumping twisting, all this stuff to try and provoke any vestibular things or ocular motor things that may still be lingering. Research on this uh, that we did with our data set found that about 15% of people that are asymptomatic all the way through and are ready to return, they think they're done. They've, got, they've done two non-contact practices. They're ready to go. They think they're going to pass. 15% of them will fail their Blackhawks test. So again, this is picking up 15% of people that would otherwise be cleared too soon. The 15, 85%, sorry, that passed their Blackhawks test, 30% of them will fail one or more elements of their baseline test. So basically your final medical clearance stage by incorporating a really good physical exertion test and really good baseline retesting is gonna hold back about 40% of athletes from returning to play too soon. Again, this is that metabolic thing. This is appropriate concussion management. This is evidence-based concussion care. This is how you should be doing this if you are going to be operating in this space. If symptoms are persistent, which is now defined as more than 10 to 14 days in adults or more than one month in children, they should be referred to a healthcare professional who is an expert in the management of concussion. And I'll tell you right now that the treatment for these patients is rehabilitation. It's treatment of the neck. It's exercise using subsymptom threshold exercise techniques. It's vestibular. It's ocular motor. It's 
it's dietary interventions. This right here is such a huge area for chiropractors to get involved in because we are the care. And if we don't learn how to do this, our, the patients won't be able to find appropriate care. This is what I'm going to talk about next week. So I'm doing another session with you guys on Monday uh, to talk about persistent symptoms. That's really the very interesting stuff. Um, this is a quote from Davis, which is a, a paper that also informed the most recent international consensus statement. Children and adolescents should not return to sport until they have successfully returned to school. We used to do things along this continuum. So we'd have everybody returning to school and then we'd bring them into the treadmill test and then we'd have them start back to sport after they had returned to school. But now with the new evidence coming out on exercise, what we're actually switched to is something like this. Now this is obviously a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on here, but here we have return to learn or work in this column. And then we have return to sport in this column. So, Basically now, this is to show you that we're actually running these concurrently now because we want people exercising earlier. So what we used to put people on the treadmill was after you know seven days, if their symptoms had gone away and they were back to school. But now we're learning that early exercise intervention is actually beneficial. So now we're putting them on the treadmill at day five to seven, whether they like it or not, and we're giving them an exercise protocol to start. So we've kind of switched up just this year. I actually, we just changed this in August based on the new evidence but we're running these concurrently. So you can see here, you can be on different stages, right? You might be on light cognitive activity over here, but we might have you on sport specific activity over here. It doesn't matter, you can go each way. The only thing we don't do is we don't put you through the Blackhawks test and we don't even consider full clearance to return to sport unless you're back in school with no problems. Right, because you have to be fully asymptomatic at rest and with exercise to even attempt the Blackhawks test. So essentially, you can run it concurrently until um, until the medical clearance stage. At that point, they should be back in school. If they're not back in school yet, they're just sticking with non-contact practices. Even if they have symptoms, it doesn't matter. They can still be at practice because this is going to improve their outcomes because they get socialization. They get to still hang out with their friends and teammates. They're a part of the team. They're getting exercise. They're doing all this stuff that's beneficial for their recovery and they're doing it in a safe way with no contact. So this is okay. We just keep them there. It's going to help them recover. Once they're able to back to full school and they're feeling 100%, once they think I'm fully good, I'm 100%, then we run them through this final stage. If they pass both of these elements, then we return them to full play, all right? So here's the summary of today's talk. Concussion is a functional injury. It is not a structural injury. Concussion does not create, you know, quote unquote, damage in the brain to the structure of the brain. There's some thoughts that it might be creating what's called microstructural damage or uh, damage that's at kind of a sub uh, clinical level that you can't identify, but we have no evidence yet or no sufficient evidence yet to suggest that that's the case. So as far as we know, it creates a temporary energy deficit that is 100% recoverable. Proper baseline testing is important, but it has to be multimodal. You can't rely on one single test. Any one test by itself is going to be insufficient for concussion detection. The initial assessment is basically your goal is ruling out more serious injury. If you want to be in this space, be really good at your cranial nerve screens, be really good at your cerebellar testing, be really good at your upper lower limb neuros and picking up any type of subtle neurological deficit. Uh, if you can do that and rule out the more serious injuries, uh, you are set to go. 
Rest right. is out. Evidence now supports early activation. And we're going to talk more about that on, I think, Monday, if correct me if I'm wrong. Um, stepwise return to activity. And it should include at the back end physical exertion testing as well as objective physical and cognitive testing based on whatever baseline information you have on that particular athlete. Now, what about persistent symptoms? What about those people that aren't getting better, right? What about those people that get all the way to the end here and they're after day 30 and they're still having symptoms? Well, that represents about 30 to 40% now of concussion patients. And this is the huge role that chiropractors have to play in this space. The amount of patients I see that have gone anywhere and everywhere and are six years after injury and are not getting better and they come and see me and I'm able to figure it out is so huge um, of professionally and it's just like it's so great to be able to help these these patients. So more on that next week. So thank you guys for coming today. Uh, I don't know how much time we have but I will answer um, I'll stick around and answer questions as long as people want to ask them. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussion.com slash find dash a dash clinic find all the local professionally trained concussion rehab individuals in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, management, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. Uh, they're going to work with you to try and find the root cause of your symptoms and then develop a treatment plan and approach to help get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving the symptoms, you can't ever help or hope to fix them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and have a higher net promoter score than Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. You will not regret it. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.